Somebody said once you can't edit a blank page, which is my mantra. No matter what's down there, you can go back and make it better. Mm. But if there's nothing down there, you know, you're stuck. Welcome to another episode of the Epic Montana Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Sheridan. On today's show, I'm joined by Gwen Florio. She is the author of the Lola Wick series, city editor at the Missoulian, Pulitzer Prize nominated journalist, and she also teaches journalism here at the University of Montana. So today on the Epic Montana Podcast, I'm joined by Gwen Florio, author of the Lola Wick series, city editor at Missoulian, and Pulitzer Prize nominated journalist. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, so just to start out, tell me a little bit about yourself and what got you to the university here and the journalism program and just Montana in general. What brought you here? Uh, I actually grew up in Delaware, yeah. which I like to tell people is a state with just about the same number of people as Montana, but it would fit within Missoula County with plenty of room to spare. Wow. Okay. So um, big open spaces, uh, a big attraction. Um, I was an English major in college. I went to the University of Delaware, and I was an English major solely because I like to read. Yeah. Um, pretty much what you do with an English major is teach, and I didn't want to teach, so I was sort of by my junior year, I was beginning to panic, as were my parents, mm -hmm. and my dad suggested I take a journalism course in the interest of getting a job. Mm -hmm. uh, and I did, and really fell in love with it. So just sort of happy circumstance. Um, you know, I, I got out and I first worked for the AP and then a variety of newspapers. And at some point did what so many people do who now live in Montana is I came out here on vacation. My brother and I went backpacking in Glacier. Oh, nice. Took one look around and was like, I have got to live in this place. Yeah. And I think it took me close to 15 or 20 years from that point to actually find a job here yeah. that would let me, you know, support myself and, um, you know, continue in journalism, but mm. a choice I have never regretted. And then by happenstance, again, I, I feel like I've had a lot of lucky breaks in my life. I was asked to teach a couple classes at the J school here, mm -hmm. which was really fun. So what was the, the first job you had over here in Montana? Um, I came here for the Great Falls Tribune's uh, Capitol Bureau. So I was working in a one-person office in Helena, uh, covering the legislature and politics largely. Okay. So what did, what did you kind of step away from? And then when, when was this? When did you first end up in Montana? I got here in 2005 for the mm -hmm. Tribune and then moved to the Missoulian in 2007. Okay. And so before that, what type of stuff were you covering, just general? Uh, before that, I was in Denver. So I had worked for many years for the Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, and it still seems amazing to me that we just took this for granted. That was back at a time when major newspapers were big and fat, and they had national bureaus and foreign bureaus. And at some point, the Inquirer sent me to their Denver bureau, mm -hmm. and that territory was the entire inner mountain west from the Canadian border down to the Mexican border and included Montana. Yeah. And so I came up here to do stories whenever I possibly could. Yeah. And then uh, when – so that was a three-year job. When it ended – you know, I was just completely in love with the West. And so I went first to the Denver Post in Denver, then the Rocky Mountain News also in Denver, while I was continuing yeah. <laughs> to sort of suss out jobs in Montana off and on. And, mm -hmm. and then just, again, by luck, one popped up. Yeah. 
So what are some of the, the big, like, stories that you remember from covering, you know, in Philadelphia and Denver before getting to Montana? Oh, boy. Um, so many. A lot of the biggest stories I covered were when I was based in Denver for mm-hmm. the Inquirer because as a national correspondent, you sort of automatically went to the big stories. Yeah. So I covered things like the Oklahoma City bombing trials. I didn't cover the bombing itself, mm-hmm. but by the time um, I started in Denver, the trials were just about to start of Timothy McVeigh and um, Terry, whose last name I just forgot. This is embarrassing. <laughs> no worries. Uh, his, his co-defendant. Mm-hmm. And uh, Terry Nichols. And um, I covered the Jean Benet Ramsey murder case wow. of the little six-year-old beauty yeah. queen who was murdered, and we still don't know who yeah. killed her all these years later. Um, I covered Columbine, which was just horrible. It was yeah. really heart-wrenching um, because I was living in Denver, my kids uh, went to Denver schools, did not go to Columbine, but my daughter played hockey and knew some of the kids from Columbine. So wow. it, was, it was way too close yeah. to home. Uh, that was tough. But then I also got to do really delightful stories. Um, when I was at the Denver Post, I got to go down to the Navajo Reservation and cover the Miss Navajo Contest, awesome. which to this day remains one of my favorite stories because... Back in Philly, I had covered Miss America, and it's yeah. very glitzy and plastic, and I'm probably going to offend people now that I've just said that. <laughs> no worries. But then when you go down to Miss Navajo, um, it's very skills-based. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the regalia they wore, they had made themselves, which was just beautiful. Um, they had to speak Navajo. Mm-hmm. One of the things they had to demonstrate was a facility with the Navajo language. And they also had to uh, slaughter and butcher and then cook a sheep, which they cooperated on, which was such a different atmosphere than the competitiveness of Miss America. So um, that was really fun. So things like that, just kind of very offbeat stories that sort of told about this region that we live in that most, you know, most people don't get to see. And that's, I think, one of the real privileges of journalism is doing that kind of work. Yeah. So I'm sure a lot of the experiences that you've experienced throughout mm-hmm. your journalism career have helped you teach about it here. Um, so mm-hmm. would you say that you know covering some of those big stories has definitely, and some of the smaller ones, mm-hmm. some of the ones that you've enjoyed, mm-hmm. has helped you as a, a teacher of journalism here at the U? Sure. Um, you know, you learn over the years sort of how to handle yourself in all kinds of circumstances. I am not the most outgoing person in the world. And I learned that I could fake being an outgoing person, you know, and ask the tough questions at news conferences, um, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing, Um, and um, learn how to handle myself in dangerous situations, which is also something good to know. Learn that when you live in the West... You want to have your gas tank no more than, you know, half empty. You, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think when I first came out here, I was always almost running out of gas because I was not prepared for how far it was between gas stations. Oh, yeah, that's true. Um, so just little things like that. Um, the same way when I lived in Philly, you learn how to be street smart. Yeah. Um, so there were just different skill sets, but all of those came in handy Uh, Because reporting, in addition to, you know, you want to be accurate and you want to take good notes and you want to represent people fairly, there's Mm -hmm. just a lot of of how you handle yourself in it. Yeah. 
So taking that and leading it to uh, this question is just how do you stay unbiased when reporting when mm-hmm. it's hard to be unbiased? Yeah. Uh, what are some tips that you have? And that's a pretty frequent question, and I think it's a really good question, and I think it's one that people um, who are not in our business um, mm-hmm. don't really understand. And I always say, I have many biases. I am full of biases, yeah. strongly held biases. But the people I'm writing, you know, the stories are not about me and yeah. my feelings. They're about the people I'm writing about, and it's my job to accurately present their side of the story. Mm-hmm. You know, I have, I do not belong in that story in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. And um, I've gotten really, it just is like second nature to me now. You know, I can be offended when I leave a place. I can be offended by something someone said. But yeah. again, it's, you know, the same thing that may offend me, other people may strongly agree with. Yeah. So again, you know, I just put it out there the way they say it and people will make up their own minds how they react to it. Yeah. So what do you think about the state of journalism now with oh, all this stuff I'm going so worried. on? Yeah. yeah. Um, there are two things going on that really concern me. Mm-hmm. And the first has been going on for, you know, at least 10 years and probably closer to 20 now, which is really depressing, is the continual shrinking of news organizations Mm -hmm. um, uh, because of money issues and and advertising and all of those, you know, advertising falling off and that sort of thing. But the reason that concerns me so much is, you know, journalists perform a really necessary watchdog function. Mm -hmm. And the fewer journalists you have doing that, the more things can slip through the cracks. Um, there have been all kinds of studies. I forget how far the number of state house reporters have fallen around the country. Yeah. So you don't want have people watching how laws get made, you know, things that affect us. Mm-hmm. You don't have people at city council meetings every night in some places. Uh, we do still, but you don't have a lot of agencies being covered regularly anymore. And now that becomes really crucial as things are changing really fast in government agencies and they're removing regulations, and you don't have enough reporters to keep on top of it. And that is super concerning. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's just, it's a function of democracy that I feel like we're losing. Uh, The other thing that concerns me is this hostility to the press. Mm -hmm. Um, I find that deeply, deeply concerning. Mm -hmm. Um, It's freedom of the press is in our constitution. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of important. Um, and, and the fact that people feel empowered to, to denigrate that is disturbing to me. Yeah. What are some of the, I mean, hopefully solutions to these problems that you see you couldn't Boy, I just think, you know, one of the things that impresses me is at this most difficult time, some amazing journalism is being done. And we're actually seeing in some ways a renewal of interest in journalism. Uh, My niece and her husband, who are both in their 20s, who live in L.A., just subscribe to the the print versions of the New York Times and the L.A. Times. And Mm -hmm. I'm seeing a lot of that, Um, just that renewed interest in it and paying attention to it. Mm -hmm. So that makes me hopeful. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I feel like all the stuff that's going on, um, it just makes there's now an um, interest in news again. I mean, even though you could say some of the news is negative, just the the real stuff that's happening, it's like, oh, God. What's going on? But it's also getting people to like, all right, you know, it's important to yeah. 
you know, take this information, be checking news sources every day. Yeah, and I always tell people, like, be informed consumers of news. You know, mm-hmm. find a reliable news source and follow that source or those sources. You know, yeah. don't just look at your news feed on Twitter and and yeah. take what anybody says. Yeah. You know, make sure you pay attention to who's putting it out there. Uh, yeah. What are some good news, news sources to check out for? Oh, I'm so traditional. You know, <laughs> okay. I'm a Maybe. New York Times, Washington Post uh, NPR, BBC, mm-hmm. uh, The Guardian is doing really good yeah. work. Um, there's a lot of spinoffs by some of those reporters. I'm thinking Axios and Political and those sources. The Hill I look at every day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just kind of now, of course, my mind will go blank, but I scroll, scroll through Twitter looking for certain people and, yeah. and watching to see what they've got to say. Okay. Are there any, like, um, radio shows or podcasts that you would recommend? You know, I um, I feel terrible. I am a latecomer to podcasts for the simple reason I don't have time. Yeah. And they're time-consuming. And I don't have, you know, if I had a long commute, I'd be all over it. Yeah. But I have a five-minute commute, so. <laughs> yeah. Um, my daughter is, I mean, she's the podcast queen. So yeah. I sort of get them filtered through her. She'll tell me what she's listened to and what I should know. And she gives me the short version. But um, I pretty much have NPR going all the time in the house, you know, during their news shows. But otherwise, you know, if I'm not working at the paper, I'm trying to get some writing in. Mm -hmm. And I have I'm envious of my friends who are visual artists because they listen to podcasts while they work. Mm -hmm. But obviously I can't do that while I'm writing. Yeah, it can be a little distracting to hear that while you're trying to pump stuff out. Exactly. Uh, so we'll segue from the journalism part of your career to mm-hmm. the writing crime fiction part mm-hmm. of your career. Um, what led you to start writing crime fiction? Uh, again, another accident. <laughs> um, I always thought of myself as a literary fiction writer. That was my main interest, and it's what I read. Mm-hmm. And I had had two novels that had gotten rejected, yeah. just were not going to get published. Mm-hmm. And my agent said, you know, well, what else do you have? write something new. And I, you know, flipped through all the stuff I kind of started and set aside. And I found one that, that really kind of drew me. And the reason I set it aside was about, it started off with a woman sitting on a hillside above her cabin, watching a bad guy go through it. Yeah. Where that came from, I have no idea, but there was clearly only one direction it could go. And that was as a crime novel. And I wasn't familiar with that genre Yeah. and I had no confidence in my ability to write it. Yet that was all I had. Yeah. So I thought, well, I'll just write a chapter. And then I wrote another one. And sort of halfway through, I went to Google and put in how to write a crime novel. <laughs> and sort of started educating myself about structure and form and, yeah. and started reading them more so I would get up to speed. And again, I fell into it. Yeah. Um, but very fortunately now I'm five novels in. Yeah. But, so, what's come out of that, though, is that as I wrote each of these novels, you know, you learn more with each book. Like, mm-hmm. if I could go back and rewrite the first one, there's a lot I would do differently. Yeah. Um, which is why it's not good to look back. <laughs> but um, there, one of the those early literary novels that got rejected, it just bugged me. Mm-hmm. And so, I um, dug it out again. I got a freelance editor. I hired her to go through it. I have a, this wonderful editor I've worked with before, and she gave me a lot of helpful information. So between what I had learned writing the other books and with her information, I rewrote it yet again mm-hmm. and sent it out on submission, and Simon & Schuster is publishing it this July. Nice. And it's a standalone novel set in Afghanistan that I am super excited about. 
What's the title? Do you have a title? I have a title now, Silent Hearts. Ooh, okay. And it's basically about uh, women in Afghanistan, which is something that I really um, wrote. It's a subject I wrote a lot about when I was there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So uh, I don't know if you remember me asking this question, but my first day of your class, you asked us to look you up. Right. And to ask you a question. So I'm yes. going to ask you that question now. That's so Again, funny. Yeah. Uh, how much of Lola Wicks, your lead <laughs> character in your series is based around, is based on you? So Lola is a journalist who um, uh, had been a, a correspondent based in Afghanistan in Kabul who got downsized and ended up uh, sort of by happenstance in a small town in, in Montana. Mm-hmm. Um, so clearly... A few similarities, and yeah. what I like to say is, as a writer of fiction, <laughs> I got to make Lola far more accomplished than I. You yeah. know, I was never a, a um, foreign correspondent based full-time somewhere. I would go in and out for short assignments. Yeah. Um, so, and she's younger, and she's thinner. Uh, I hope she's crankier than I am. She, I gave her kind of a rotten personality, and I hope I'm not like that. But it made her fun to write because yeah. she's always trying to force herself to be nice when she'd rather not. Yeah. Um, and, and her crankiness kind of gets her in trouble a lot. So there are those similarities. One of the things I wanted to do with her was mm-hmm. show people what journalism is really like. Yeah. That it's not, um, A, first and foremost – as is often depicted in movies and some novels, mm-hmm. journalists don't sleep with their sources. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I lose my mind when I see that happen. So uh, it's a lot of slogging through records, yeah. things like that. I have to make it more exciting because this is crime fiction and people have to die and things yeah. like that. <laughs> but um, So Lola gets into much more danger than I ever did. Yeah. But, um, but in between that, she's down at the courthouse or at the library going through records or pushing a sheriff to talk to her who doesn't want to talk to her, that kind of thing. Yeah. That's interesting. That's, yeah. I'm, see, I, I didn't get that long of an answer before, uh, but okay. I'm glad. I'm glad. I've been waiting on it. Ah, now you know. Um, so how long does it take to kind of process and write each one of these novels? I'm sure some have taken longer or shorter than some others. Some have taken a lot longer. Yeah. Um, once I got a contract that said I had to write a novel a year, yeah. amazingly, it only took a year. <laughs> um, so what I try and do is get a rough draft, and when I say rough, I mean horrible, yeah. um, within six months. Okay. And then I spend another three months or so polishing and, and polish and rewriting it. And you know, I usually say it takes me about a third of the book to begin to get a sense of what's going on mm-hmm. and then another third to sort of put that into play. And by the final third, I know what's going on and I gallop happily to the end and then I have to go back and rewrite the first two thirds to make them fit. Yeah. Um, so that takes a good three months. And then there's usually, um, at that point it goes off to a publisher and there's this three month process of editing and copy editing and then backing and forthing. Mm-hmm. And while I'm doing that, I have to start the next book in order to keep on schedule. So I'm sort of starting one book and working on another. And um, this year, um, it just worked out that I sold that standalone novel Mm -hmm. in the middle of finishing up the fifth novel in the Lola Wicks series. Mm -hmm. So there was a point, and I'm almost done that point, where I was doing the edits on the fifth Lola novel kind of getting the Afghanistan novel into shape and then starting a new one because I don't have any contracts after this and I'd like to keep doing this. So I need to have a new book ready to offer someone. 
And every so often I would just sit down at my laptop and like go, okay, what am I working on today? Which one? And have to get into that headspace. Yeah. What are some processes into like getting into the the writing zone for you anyway? Uh, Sitting down at my computer. Yeah. So this is the great thing about journalism as applied Mm -hmm. to fiction. And I think this would apply across the board to any Mm -hmm. journalist who writes fiction is we don't get writer's block. Yeah. You know, I, if you pled writer's block in a newsroom, you'd probably get shot. <laughs> uh, it's like, no, you have a deadline. Let's chop, chop. Yeah. <laughs> um, so basically I sit down and I, I try and do a thousand words a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and even on horrible, horrible days, I just, you know, force myself to type anything. And, and generally there's probably a good 15 minutes of just dreadful crap. Yeah. And then something happens that I have come to count on, even though I won't feel it when I sit down, that somehow my brain, my, my fiction brain takes over and it gets tired of crap and starts putting less crappy stuff down. Yeah. Kinda. And you can always go back and edit out the crap. You know, somebody said once you can't edit a blank page, which is my mantra. Wow. No matter what's down there, you can go back and make it better. Mm-hmm. But if there's nothing down there, you know, you're stuck. Interesting. Yeah. So what was the process like taking a step back in the mm-hmm. in your uh not like novelist career? Mm-hmm. What, what's your preferred side question? What's yeah. your preferred like the name for are you an author, novelist? What do you what do you like to hear? I just call myself a writer. A writer? Yeah. Okay. So going back in your process as a writer, mm-hmm. what what was the process like in trying to like get an agent and getting your book published? What was that process? It was horrible. Like? Yeah. Um, and I think it's, it's kind of, um, the way it is for most people. Let's see. Um, I had a novel, the first one that I wrote and completed, I probably, you know, I wrote it and maybe I went back and rewrote a little bit mm-hmm. and I was like, I've written a novel. I'm going to get an agent. Yeah. And I sent it out and I got no agent <laughs> oddly enough. And so then I had to write another one, and that's when I wrote the first version of the Afghanistan novel. Mm -hmm. And so I queried 60 agents before I got an offer. And then I was like, I have an agent. This thing's going to be published. This is wonderful. And she sent it out on submission for a year, Mm -hmm. and it got rejected everywhere, at which point she quit her job. Oh. (laughs) Which, you know, hard not to take personally. Yeah. Um. And I said, well, what do I do now? And she said, well, you have to rewrite it, you know, Mm -hmm. because everyone's seen it. Yeah. And so I rewrote it. And it took me um, maybe about a dozen this time before I got an agent. Mm -hmm. And she sent it around for a year, nothing. Mm -hmm. And that's when she called me one day and she said, okay, you know, the book is not going to sell. What have you got? And that's when I dove into the Lola thing. So she sort of pushed me into that. But that was a really rough day. Yeah. And, um, then when I, um, rewrote it yet again, I really wanted to go for broke. I got a new agent, which was not a long process at Mm -hmm. all this time, just a a wonderful agent. And he sent it around for a year Mm -hmm. (laughs) to the point where I thought, okay, I have given this thing my best shot. You know, I've been coming back at it for more than 10 years now. And if it doesn't work this time, I was sort of making my peace with the fact that I was going to have to dig a hole in the backyard and bury this manuscript and call it good. And after a year, I got a call one day and he said that not one, but two publishers had expressed interest 
and within the course of three days, another publisher jumped in, and calls were going back. I was actually in North Dakota giving a workshop out there, and I was flying back. He was saying things like, okay, write up a proposal for your next book when you're on the plane, and as soon as you land, send it to this publisher, and it was just crazy. And so um, that came about, but... It was long and awful and lots yeah. of rejection, yeah. but worth waiting for. Yeah, definitely. And I kind of think, in a way, this process is designed to weed people out because mm-hmm. there are a lot of almost good books out there yeah. that need, you know, as mine did. It mm-hmm. really needed that final push to get it where it is now. And even after uh, my agent worked with me to revise a lot of things on it, I mean, the first thing he said, and that's when I knew he was the right agent, he said, you know, your first chapter is your last chapter. Mm-hmm. And as soon as he said it, I went, why, yes, it is. <laughs> what, an, what an amazing thing. Yeah. Um, and then um, once we had reworked it, uh, we gave it to the editor, and she had really extensive and quite wonderful edits. Mm-hmm. So this thing bears no resemblance to its original self, but it's yeah. just a lot. I mean, I'm really happy with it. Good. And this is what I wanted was an editor who would make me better. Yeah. You know, that's what we all want. Yeah. So, um, again, worth it. Yeah. So, yeah. It's an incredible process. Pretty much. And you just have to have a really thick skin and be really patient. And yeah. I will say that many times over the years, I have just wanted to chuck it. Yeah. You know, especially like in the summer here. Yeah. My friends are all hiking and I'm seeing all their pictures on Instagram of their great adventures. And I'm like sitting in a little room typing going, yeah. I hate my life. <laughs> so. well, I'm glad the the, the yeah the weight was worth it. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, so what do you think about the writing community in Montana? Not just, I mean, there's a lot of really great right. crime fiction writers, but just the writing community in general. In general, it's wonderful. Yeah. And I have been told that like years and years ago, again, back when the Philadelphia paper was rich and fat, it had a Sunday magazine. Mm-hmm. And wow. I got to write a story about all the writers in Montana. Mm-hmm. Um, and what someone said to me was that unlike New York, this is not a competitive cutthroat community. It's mm-hmm. a super supportive community. And yeah. I would say I found that across the board. Yeah. You know, A, it's wonderful to be in a uh, community with a lot of writers. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was working on my books, I took uh, 406 Writers as, has a series of writing workshops. Mm-hmm. And I took a novel writing workshop with David Allen Cates. It was super helpful. Yeah. And to have that resource in a town this size is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. To have all the bookstores in a town yeah. this size which are incredibly supportive of their local writers. Again, just like a super privilege. So it's like writer heaven here. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. I didn't realize that until a little later in my living here. Mm-hmm. It's like, can go anywhere. You can go there. And there's so, I love it. That's independent yeah. bookstores too. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I love going to Barnes and Noble and right. all that too, but it's so nice to see that there's a community. Between the here. independent bookstores around the state and the libraries, um, one of the pieces of advice I got early on was go to small town libraries, mm-hmm. and I have done that, and it is a wonderful, wonderful experience. Like now, the librarians and I are friends. Yeah. You know, we chat on Facebook, and you go to these little places, and a fairly big crowd shows up, and mm-hmm. you get again, you get to know people face to face, and it's just lovely. I mean, mm-hmm. I I think we're really lucky to live in this place for that reason, for many reasons, but yeah. for that reason too. So what are some recommended reads that you have? Uh, <laughs> this is always the thing I dread because my mind uh, just goes blank. But the book I'm reading now is called Exit West by mm-hmm. Mohsin Hamid. And 
I'm not sure what award it was. It's been on all the you know ten best books of the year mm-hmm. uh, lists that come out this time of year. And so I finally thought maybe I should read this book, and I started it. And I'm really resenting like work time and eating time and sleep time because I, I can't <laughs> so finish keep it. Keep up with it, yeah. And um, it's about uh, the immigrant experience. You know, people living in the country is not specified. I don't think, but it sure looks like Pakistan. Yeah. And then you know, watching things kind of crumble around them and trying to get out and ending up in refugee camps in Greece, and it's just. You know, it's it's a really intense book. Mm-hmm. And then I finished another one that coincidentally is also about the immigrant experience, and it was called Little Bee. And it's, um, God, I just read it, but I think the woman is from Nigeria. I could be wrong about that. But she ends up in England. And, again, really, really intense and yeah. sad, and but beautiful writing in each of them, just mm-hmm. some just amazing writing. And I'm listening to, um, again, a, a big book in the last couple of years, The Underground Railroad yeah. by Colson Whitehead. Holy cow. Um, it's a tough, tough book. He does not hold back. Yeah. But it's such a good book and, mm-hmm. and really necessary book. I mean, I just think people ought to know that stuff. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel like I've the last uh, few weeks I've been steeped in really good books, but really sad books. Yeah. And I need to read something about puppies when I'm done. Yeah, something happy. <laughs> yeah. Bring it back. It's like, I mean, anytime I read like, a really sad book, I have to, like, I reread The Alchemist. Oh, that's a good idea. And it's like, okay, okay, I can get through this. Let me reread this. Like, yeah. Oh, okay. You need a go-to book like yeah, that. Something that picks you back. It's like watching a scary movie. And, like, right. Before you go to bed, like, I should watch, like, The Office or something. Yeah. Kinda, <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, get my mood back up. Yeah. Um, so going going back to just everything that you've experienced. Mm-hmm. Do you have any advice that you'd like to give the listeners of the show or just the community about the trades that you've been in and maybe just yeah. some things in general like mental health practices that have helped oh, you a lot That's a good idea. Way. Yeah, because people in newspapers and publishing tend to be really neurotic. Yeah. Um, but in a good way. <laughs> um, I think part of it is, um, you know, it's really easy to say follow your dream and I've always seen, especially in the, the fiction community, you see, follow your dream, but get a damn job. Yeah. Because um, you have to eat. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to pay rent. Um, but you have to find that balance. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things when I came back to the Missouli and I worked there for several years and took a break to write fiction mm-hmm. uh, full time and then uh, very fortunately was asked to come back. But I came back as an editor and mm-hmm. I think... Editing at work and then writing at home is mm-hmm. good. Yeah. I think writing in both places would make my head explode. I did it for years, and it was not easy. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you can find something that gives you space to do what you want, mm-hmm. that's good. Um, again, that thick skin, really important. You know, I think life, no matter what you do, is going to be full of rejection and disappointment. You know, yay, Pollyanna. <laughs> but but it is. And you just need to learn to, to go on because it's also full of reward. Mm-hmm. And then being patient. And, you know, I know when I was young, boy, I started off my 20s. I wanted to be a foreign correspondent then. Yeah. I did not begin to have the chops to do that. I'm not sure I did when I finally went overseas. Yeah. But um, I was way better prepared than I had been two decades earlier. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, just learn all those skills that you need. Um, and then enjoy it. 
Yeah. You know, every so often, you know, when I was talking about working on three books at once and then I'm working full time and sometimes I feel ground down and then I'm like, holy cow, you know, I am literally, not to sound hokey, I'm literally living my dream yeah. and I'm complaining. I don't think so. <laughs> so, um, some perspective. Yeah. Then the other thing I do is I hike and run a lot. Yeah. You know, again, we live in this beautiful, beautiful place. And no matter how bad a day I've had, if mm-hmm. I go out and I'm up the rattlesnake, all of that goes away because yeah. it's just so gorgeous. And it's like none of that other stuff really matters. Yeah. So. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, so just to close things out, can you give us your website where we can find your books? Yes. Um, so my website is gwenflorio.net, and pretty soon it's going to be linked into gwenflorio.com. Um, the books are all over Amazon, all the usual places, in all of our wonderful local independent bookstores, which makes me really happy. And, uh, yeah, I think that's it. Right. You know, if you just Google me on the Internet, as you find, I'm going to yeah. have references to them all over the place because um, I hope that people read them. Oh, and libraries, speaking of, you know, you don't even have to pay money, which now my... I, you know, feel my publisher hovering, very ang- angry. But um, they're in libraries too, which makes me really happy. I used to, I worked in libraries all through high school and college. Mm-hmm. So when I go in a library and see my book on a shelf, I am just a, a happy camper. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the show. If you like this episode or any of our others, be sure to rate and subscribe us on any podcast repository that you use. Thanks for listening. Do you love Montana? The Montana Shop does, and it carries the most Montana brands online. From where your roots and up top to the Montana scene and many more, the Montana Shop is the perfect place to find a gift for every proud Montanan. You can find them at themontanashop.com, and listeners of this podcast can save 10% by using the coupon code EPICMT. It's a great deal on great Montana merch. Again, shop at themontanashop.com and use coupon code EPICMT at checkout for 10% off. It has been said many times that confidence is the key to success. From the Ground Up is a sock company that allows you to wear that confidence with these cheeky, whimsical socks that pay homage to some of society's boldest, confident, and powerful icons. You can conquer the world in a pair of Maryland's or be the boss with a pair of Winston Churchill's. I have a few pairs myself, and I can confidently say that they are the most comfortable and durable socks I've ever owned. Listeners of the Epic Montana podcast will receive a 15% discount with the coupon code EPICMT at checkout. You can purchase your pair on ftgusocks.com. Music from today's podcast was provided by freesound.org and freemusicarchive.org. Thank you to the artists Ryan Little, Krasovsky, Stereosurgeon, and Ben Stone for the show's music. Thank you.